0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So to wrap up our conference, we're going to talk about anxiety, de-escalation, and stress reduction techniques, Dr. Ball and Dr. Lyons. Uh, Dr. Ball is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UCSF and a licensed psychologist at the Star Center. For the past 14 years, she has worked in several clinical and research settings, conducting diagnostic assessments and providing individualized and group-based treatment to children and adults with ASD. Her research and clinical work center around understanding the strengths and challenges of adults with ASD, and she has a specific interest in working with children and adults who are minimally verbal. And Dr. Lyons has a very short bio here. He is a behavior analyst and a researcher at the STAR Center. So, welcome, both of you.
0: Wrap it up. Thank you. So, I'm Greg, and Dr. Ball will be um, presenting the second half. um, And it is Friday, almost evening. Uh, end of the conference, and so everyone's own anxiety and stress should be feeling um, reduced at this point. Um. Okay, so um, I'm, we have three objectives today in our talk. Um, the first is to um, couch um, anxiety and stress responses in the literature on uh, challenging behavior interventions and strategies, and in doing so... Um, then present a um, very useful evidence-based um, framework for problem-solving um, uh, problem challenging behavior um, and stress-anxiety responses. Uh, and that's commonly known as Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports, um, which is a function-based multi-compone- multi-component assessment planning and practice process. And then finally, um, Dr. Ball will extend uh, these strategies into cognitive uh, behavioral therapy for anxiety. So, what? Um, so, challenging behavior tends to be the thing we think of when um, when uh, we when stress and anxiety are indicated. Um, and it, the definition of challenging behavior tends to be pretty broad. Um, and it means interference with uh, learning or socialization or pro-social um, um, activities. Um, and so these behaviors then interfere with that, those pro-social um, opportunities. Uh, so let's ground it then in... Um, a, a case example. Um, and this draws on some recent examples uh, from uh, my own clinical experience. And so Saul is a 12-year-old um, who uses phrase speech. Saul's parents note that he gets stressed easily uh, when he is n- uh, in new or less familiar places. He also expresses his need for sameness by becoming upset and or avoidant. He'll either melt down or shut down. Um, He gets very anxious when something is different or does not go as expected. Oftentimes this results in him running off, uh, commonly known as eloping. Um, His mother also explained that he becomes anxious when his dad wears button-down t-shirts and will scream until dad removes the shirt. Um, I can't make this up, Uh, this is true. so these types of challenges um, they found are more likely to happen if he misses a meal, so he's hungry, um, does not sleep through the night, or um, had, a, had to deal with a stressor earlier on in the day. These setting events essentially make him less tolerant. Um, so the behavior analyst collaborated with Saul's parents to clarify the topography of these behaviors, what they actually look like. Um, the associated environment variables, you know, what happens before and after these events. And then finally, what are the behavior functions? And so I'm going to go through um, discussing what it means to, um, to uh, indicate what the topography is, to analyze the environmental variables, and then come up with a suspected function. There are four basic um, broad primary functions uh, we think of uh, when we think of challenging behaviors. Um, And those are, um, Uh, and those functions then uh, tell us about how we plan our multi-component behavior support plans. Multi-component behavior support plans include prevention strategies. Uh, teaching strategies where we teach coping responses or communicative replacement skills, and then finally how we how do we manage consequences? What happens after those anxiety or stress responses or challenging behaviors occur? Um, positive behavior supports um, grew out of the field of applied behavior analysis, um, but there's a focus on positive prevention. Um, positive and preventative practices and, um, inc- and developing a very reinforcement rich environment, um, for individuals. There's a reduced role of punishment and probably even no role, um, and no aversive stimuli. Um, positive behavior interventions of sports are based on, uh, functions, which I'll talk about in a second, um, and multi-component planning. That is, uh, plans that include many strategies at once, uh, Policy behavior support um, emphasizes ecologically valid and generalizable results. So parents, um, teachers are involved in um, implementing these strategies. It's not just an expert clinician. Um, We want uh, our interventions to be acceptable and feasible by stakeholders um, and uh, collaboratively developed. Um, so it's not just me going in, developing a plan, it's me going in and developing a plan closely with parents and teachers. It's person-centered, and finally, and most probably most importantly, um, it's evidence-based um, in the research literature, and it's driven by data um, in the field. So why does, why do challenging, why does challenging behavior occur? So behavior is often communication. I'm sure you guys have uh, heard this. Um, And uh, kids with developmental disabilities and um, individuals with developmental disabilities often have limited communication social repertoires, um, which can contribute to um, stress and anxiety and challenging behavior. And so the job of uh, the positive behavior support team is to figure out what the function is, so why it occurs, or what the purpose of it is. and not immediately assume stress or anxiety, although often it is, that would be the case. And there are two broad categories of function, and the first category is to obtain, to get something, um, or to keep something. And then the second broad category is to avoid or escape. And when we think of anxiety responses, it's particularly around avoidance or escaping a situation, Um, there's a nice acronym for helping us remember uh, four basic functions that fall under those two other functions. So we talked about escape or avoidance. Um, and then, then the other three are to obtain. So to obtain attention, to obtain something tangible or an event, um, and then finally uh, sensory, uh, which would be automatic or non-socially mediated um, Functions. So our, our mnemonic is EATS, and these are broad categories and um, can be broken down into smaller categories, um, but these are important because knowing whether it's escape or attention or tangible or sensory helps us build our multi-component plans. Um, and it's m- much more informative than um, simply indicating stress or anxiety. So... Functional behavior assessments at this point have become um, well diffused into the community, although they're not always um, implemented um, in the best way. So I'm going to cover them really quickly so we can get to the strategies. Functional behavior assessments help us identify those four functions, escape, attention, tangible, and sensory. It's data-driven. We take lots of data, and I'll go over what those data are, Um, and it's they tend to be implemented by BCBA, a board-certified behavior analyst, um, or or a psychologist, or a professional with expertise in FBA. Um, so, although teachers and parents and caregivers and um, natural change agents are um, are uh, the focus of positive behavior intervention and supports, it really needs to be conducted with a qualified health health and educational professional, such as a BCBA. Uh, Again, these are used to then develop the behavior support plan, helping us understand why, helps us then plan and treat. There are two basic categories of data. Uh, The first are direct data, and um, these are the preferred data and used in conjunction with indirect and informant data. Uh, We collect data on what happens before and after challenging events. Uh, we collect data on um, when it's happening, so that's a scatter plot. I'll show you that in a second. Uh, we take data on frequency of the challenging behavior and duration of the challenging behavior, how long it goes on. Um, and, then, and then if needed, we do what's called a functional analysis, which is an experimental paradigm um, that helps, helps us uh, clarify what the function is. Um, And then this is informed and um, buttressed by functional assessment interviews, um, as well as FBA scales and screeners. Um, And this is the one I'd recommend, the um, functional uh, assessment screening tool, um, which is readily available online for free. Has the best reliability with more um, rigorous functional analyses methodology. This is what the, the fast looks like. It's pretty fast to fill out. Uh, This is an example of scatter plots. Scatter plots um, are very useful and underutilized. Um, Often, I I suggest we uh, conduct a scatter plot when um, I hear my child is always stressed. My child is always anxious. My um, my daughter um, is always hitting or hitting herself or others. Um, And while it may seem like Um, Well, in this case, George is always throwing books. There's actually a few times um, where he's not or is less likely, and that can help us understand those environmental variables around why it's happening, which is the function of um, the behavior. And this is uh, probably the most important tool, what's called an ABC analysis, uh, where we look at the date, time, the setting, the context, But most importantly, what happens before, the antecedent, and what happens after, the consequence. And consequence doesn't mean a punishment. It just means what happens after the behavior. And then that helps us understand what the function is, why it's happening. Is it to escape? Is it to obtain attention? Is it to obtain something? Um, Or is it for sensory purposes? And once we figure out those antecedents, behaviors, and consequences, and the settings, the setting events that make, make challenging behavior or stress responses or anxiety more or less likely, um, we, can, we can conduct a pattern analysis, um, hypothesize what the function is, and inform our behavior support plan. And this is what, this is what uh, broadly what a behavior support plan should include. It should include those antecedents, and strategies related to the antecedents. Um, And those tend to be preventative strategies, proactive preventative strategies, not waiting for that stress response to occur. Um, Behavior teaching or replacement skill strategies, and then finally, consequence management. Remember, we're in the realm of positive behavior supports, so we're gonna focus on reinforcement strategies. These are um, some prominent, well-researched, evidence-based prevention strategies, and I've grouped them into four different areas. Avoiding and altering setting events and triggers, and clarifying expect- expectation and predictability. So this really helps with rigidity and need for sameness, and I've, I find that um, most people get this, and, um, and there's different ways to help with that. Uh, People tend to use uh, schedules very well, um, checklists and foreshadowing and warning. So um, in the case of Saul, if, if, uh, if an event is going to change um, in his daily routine, uh, what could his teacher do? Perhaps foreshadow the change, right? Uh, warn of the change. Um, p- put, put the change within the activity schedule. And this could help then avoid... A stressful situation for Saul. Priming ex- pre-exposure is also really helpful. So if Saul doesn't like going to new places, um, how can we help make that new place less stressful and less anxiety-provoking? Um, well, we could explore the place under less demanding situations or um, practice um, under less demanding situations. So, birthday parties is a common uh, situation that could lead to stress or anxiety um, for individuals with de- developmental disabilities. Um, and so, maybe we practice under um, really fun um, uh, parameters a uh, birthday party. Um, or if uh, a child is going to go to a new school, um, then we might p- go to the school without kids there and walk around the school and have our favorite snack in the, in the snack area or the cafeteria. And so we're developing nice positive associations through that pre-exposure priming um, in, in the new situation. And then first then, and first then can be used in different ways, simply to say, okay, first we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. But it could also be done in a motivating way, where first we're going to do something not so fun, and then we're going to do something fun. And that could also help with altering those setting events or triggers um, and clarifying expectation and predictability. Another preventative strategy is increasing understanding. So social stories, social narratives um, are really helpful for that. Um, And... um, if you can make them fun and motivating and, and incorporate preferred interests, then that's helpful as well. Um, role playing and modeling. So um, in the case of uh, the birthday party, you might um, role play that. So that role play um, being the, the, the uh, person whose birthday it is or um, be the an attendee at a birthday party. Uh, When it comes to anxiety, um, especially uh, gradual approaches, such as systematic desensitization um, or systematic fading and gradual demand exposure are really helpful. Um, Systematic fading is simply taking a situation that's easy and, and, and taking a situation that's hard and slowly combining them so that the hard situation becomes easy. And again, this should be done with in consultation with a behavior analyst and then gradual demand exposure. So oftentimes in in instruction in schools um, or demands placed on kids at home or individuals at home, um, we may want to start with demands that are easier. Right. And then build success before we get to demands that are harder. And so that gradual process is really helpful. And then finally, altering in control and motivation. Uh, building in choices and preferences um, and, and helps alter the motivational parameters of situations that could be stressful. So if a child has um, stress around letters and numbers, identification, um, maybe embedding those in, in tasks that are fun um, would be an initial step for helping overcome that anxiety and stress around... Um, letters and numbers. Skill teaching. Um, So now we're on the B. uh, And so usually we're thinking about teaching behaviors or coping responses um, or functionally functionally equivalent communicative replacement behaviors. This is really important for stress or anxiety related responses. So take the case of um, Saul wanting his father to uh, not wear a button shirt. Um, And Saul goes directly to screaming and tantruming and throwing. Um, We might first want to just teach Saul to tell his father nicely to change his shirt. So that would be a functionally equivalent communicative replacement behavior. Um, We'd also teach Saul then coping and calming down strategies. And I'll get to that in a second when we talk about uh, desensitization. But there are many coping and calming strategies that could be developed but I would suggest you individualize them. Some kids don't like deep breathing, some kids don't like music, um, and so on. So those are individualized uh, for, the ch- for the child. I just had worked with a kid where in our social story, one of our, um, one of our uh, coping responses was to go listen to Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, and he just had a, has a lot of fun with that. <laughs> um, embedded in there is, well, we're shaking it off. Increasing related skill competencies. So, for example, if the kid, for for the kid that has stress or anxiety around uh, letters and numbers, um, if we build skill there motivationally, that could also help reduce some of that stress. And then I, I threw under here uh, practicing and reinforcing behavioral flexibility because it's very important. And in the case of Saul and the, the, his dad wearing the button-up shirt, um, it really comes down to that flexibility and rigidity. And I'll tell you what we did about that because I know we're on the our edge of our seats. And so we did a gradual exposure and systematic desensitization paradigm. Um, where we started with actually embedding reinforcers, too. And so there's two things we want to think about when we do this process. Again, is building a hierarchy that's really gradual, and so kids never really get very uncomfortable. And then secondly is building in a competing reinforcer, which functions as a distractor and incompatibility with a stress or anxiety response. This has been around for a long time, um, but is really helpful even outside of phobias. So it was started in phobias and anxiety, but could also be helpful for um, treating uh, rigidity and inflexibility in kids with developmental disabilities. So we started with just the dad coming in with the shirt in his hand, and inside the pocket was what? a competing reinforcer. It was the delivery of fire trucks and bubbles and candy and all sorts of fun things. Um, and slowly but surely, we made our way up the hierarchy to where Dad had partially the shirt on, again, coming in each time with something new in his pocket. And then finally, the shirt was buttoned up, um, and, in, and Dad came in with a new item, um, and Dad was able to stay for a while in the room Uh, While they played bubbles together and we increased that amount of time and then the next step for that is generalizing it and that's what they're working on now. The the gradual exposure and systematic desensitization um, paradigm is really really helpful for um, addressing uh, anxiety and stress um, in in individuals with developmental disabilities and then finally motivational systems are really helpful. I think most of us are familiar with token, with token economies, um, or I don't want to say star charts because that term is a little overused and a bit of a misnomer, um, but token economies help motivate um, our kids through uh, stressful or anxious situa- anxiety-provoking situations. Um, but an al- a nice elaboration to token economies is self-monitoring Um, and self-management. And in these processes, not only are there uh, token economies in place, but we're teaching kids to self-evaluate their own behavior, gain a self-awareness of their own behavior, and self-reinforce. And this is important because when we start thinking about self-monitoring and self-evaluation and self-awareness, not only are we targeting specific stress or anxiety responses, but we're also targeting self-regulation, a broader, more generalizable skill area, um, which we know is really important to develop in all individuals and particularly individuals with developmental disabilities. Um, I do want to mention that I went through some prevention, behavior, and consequence management strategies in about 10 minutes. (laughs) Um, There are many of these, many, many um, helpful strategies, and a behavior analyst could help Um, practitioners and teachers select those there are two uh, areas of research I just want to point out in positive behavior support so PBS has been around for decades now Um, ABA has been around for even more decades now Um, but recently as of 2015 there was the first rigorous large-scale randomized control trial which elaborated on these data and it was parents that were the implementers of these positive behavior support strategies um, And there's some now really nice, rigorous data on uh, these types of strategies that I just uh, shared with you. Um, And then uh, Dr. Ens had mentioned this, but at uh, UCSF and our... um Parenting Together series, we're we're looking at the use of optimistic parenting, which is developed by Dr. Durand at the University of South Florida, that helps parents and teachers build their optimism around parenting and teaching. Because we know that over time, um, high degrees of pessimism can make their way into um, our lives, their lives, and that can interfere with the learning and implementation of these strategies. And so there's some of the, the research that um, we're doing at UCSF that is piggybacking on uh, the work of Dr. Durand. So now I'm gonna invite Dr. Ballup to help extend uh, CBT, uh, extend our strategy into CBT for anxiety.
1: Hi, everyone. I know we're running a little bit behind, so I'm going to go through things pretty quickly. Um, But I think there's a lot of information in your slides, and we'll have a little bit of time um, for discussion and questions at the end. Um, But so CBT, or cognitive behavioral strategies, is based on the idea that there's a feedback loop between our thoughts, our behaviors, and our feelings. So a really classic example is someone has an anxiety um, about bridges, and so they feel anxious about bridges because they have this thought that if they're on top of a bridge, it could. down and they could die. And so, um, you know, because they have this anxiety, be- this motivates their behavior, which is to avoid bridges at all costs. And because they avoid bridges, they never have the opportunity to really see that when they're on a bridge, it can be okay, and not all bridges are going to fall down. And so this then um, develops into a, f- a feedback loop in which, you know, every time they see a bridge, they feel a little more anxious, and, you know, they remember this thought that, you know, perhaps, I could die if this bridge falls down. Um, and so they continue to avoid bridges and, and it you know, sometimes stems into avoidance of other things that they have these sort of um, what we think of as distorted thoughts um, that are motivating their anxieties. So CBT is um, has two components primarily that's looking at trying to address these different anxieties. Um, one of which is um, the behavioral components which um, incorporate a lot of the same kinds of uh, strategies that Greg just talked to you about. And then the other piece is really trying to get at what are those distorted thoughts and and um, you know finding um, ways to modify those beliefs in order to um, to allow individuals to reduce their anxiety um, and um, you know sort of take more control over the things that they're fear of. Um, CBT is very present-focused, so for individuals who are engaging in CBT, you're not going to go through a lot of um, background history, and you know, certainly this is very different than psychodynamic therapy where you spend a lot of time talking about families and maybe where some of these um, anxieties stemmed from, though certainly that could be important in the development of distorted thoughts. Um, it's time-limited, so you, most CBT programs are somewhere between 10 and 16 weeks, um, and it's very problem-solving-oriented. So one of the first things that you do in many CBT programs is identify what are the specific anxieties or fears um, that you or that the child has, um, and and you really focus on addressing very specific things um, in treatment with the hopes that those those skills that you learn in addressing specific fears will also generalize. Let's see. Okay, so um, there are several CBT programs um, that have been... um, Researched a little bit um, for children um, and adolescents, particularly with ASD. So, there are three different um, types of programs that are used individual um, treatment programs, so mostly, you know, a child um, sitting with a psychologist in a one on one session or a, or a social worker. Um, certainly, all individual therapy with children should also incorporate their parents. Um, and so, examples of this program, there's a, a um, or these kinds of individual treatments. There's the BIACA program by Jeff Wood and colleagues down at UCLA, and then the Coping Cat, which was not developed for children with autism. was ju- developed for children um, with more sort of general anxieties um, by Kendall and, and has been... Um, starting to be more widely used with kids with autism. There's a group-based intervention called Facing Your Fears by Judy Reven that's had a little bit of research. And then there's some combined programs that include both individual components as well as the group-based components. Um, So Exploring Feelings by Tony Atwood um, in Australia. And then there's a multimodal anxiety and social skills intervention by Susan White, and so I'll talk just a little bit about a couple of the programs that um, have had a little more um, research. Um, so the Coping Cat, I think, is one of the most widely used child um, CBT programs, um, certainly outside of autism. But I think has um, gained increasing traction in in a lot of autism clinics. It's very user friendly. Um, it's also very inexpensive, which I think is you know two important things when we're thinking about. Um, clinical services anywhere, but particularly um, out in the community. So, um, you know, again, these are individual sessions with the child, often incorporating the family. And the first eight weeks really focus on teaching skills and the um, last eight weeks um, focus on implementing those skills, both in the session as well as homework in the home. Um, And so I'm not gonna read through all the different elements, but I think um, important things, And common elements that you'll see across programs is really trying to help children to identify their feelings, both the physiological components as well as, um, you know, the antecedents or, you know, what are triggering the thoughts or the, um, the anxious feelings. And then also... Um, developing specific coping plans, so Greg kind of alluded to some of this sometimes it 's specific coping strategies like breathing um, or you know distractions, but it's particularly in cbt programs it 's also about modifying those distorted thoughts, so coming up with little scripts um, or you know modifying what they call self talk so you know if you have this feeling that the bridge is going to fall down when you're on it. You know, being able to sort of rationalize with yourself um, and and talk yourself through that, that you have no evidence that the bridge is going to fall down or that, you know, this bridge has never fallen down despite being, you know, um, up for several decades or whatever that might be. And then um, particularly important, I think, is the practice or the exposure component. And for the coping cat specifically, you have a fear hierarchy. So you develop with the child um, all the different things that they might be afraid of, and, and you sort of um, then put them in order from least to most. And you really start, um, you know, when you start to do the practice and the exposure, you start with those smaller things, the things that they can envision potentially tolerating, um, and then you build up to those fears um, that are are more um, challenging for them. Uh, the BIACA program, I have the 7- to 13-year-old range in red because I think they're also developing an adolescent program now. Um, just so you guys know, this is not yet publicly available. I've been told that it's um, with the publishers in some various stages, so hopefully we'll see it soon. Um, I think there's been a, a fair amount of research by um, this particular research group and I think the, the, the hopeful thing about this is it's been specifically designed for children with autism. So it incorporates a lot of the similar strategies and approaches that the coping cat does. Um, but it also incorporates some supplementary social skills training. So to address the specific needs of children with autism. And then also, um, they've really thought through the reward process, sort of what Greg was alluding to. Um, and so moving beyond something like a token economy to really think about what are the child's sort of special interests, um, and being able to, to capitalize on those to motivate change. Um, Facing Your Fears, again, is a, um, is a group program um, including both parent and child components, and so you know sometimes people I think it seems really obvious why um, why parents should be involved in in any kind of child or individual child therapy, um, but I, I wanted to actually use an example I was thinking about you know with with greg 's case, so f- for example saul doesn 't like. Dad to wear button down shirts. And let's say Saul has the verbal skills to tell us that, you know, that's because he thinks something bad's gonna happen to his dad when he wears a button down shirt. Okay, so we can address that. Um, distorted thought but he's also this has motivated his behavior to then have a tantrum right which then motivates dad's behavior to take the shirt off because as a parent if all you have to do is take off your shirt to to prevent a tantrum that you know at 9 o'clock in the morning you're trying to get out the door that seems like a reasonable thing you could put your shirt on in the car However, <laughs> this is where it starts, right? And, I mean, any of you who are parents of, of young children, you, you, you know these things about, you know, behavior and, and parenting, and certainly it gets harder and harder to manage as your children get older, and particularly for children um, and adolescents with autism. You know, these... Um, these uh, behavioral displays get stronger, they're more difficult to manage. And so part of the importance of including parents in the intervention is also to help them see how their child's anxieties and fears are motivating the parent's behavior and making sure that we also get the parents to um, be motivated to um, to change with the child. Um, And then I think the last program I have um, is exploring feelings. So this is a really short program um, and it's also a group-based intervention um, and I think has been shown a little bit of success in, in a few schools. And so I, I highlight this um, just because I think you know, sometimes we need um, shorter programs that can address larger numbers of children in different kinds of settings. Um, and I think Atwood has talked about this not necessarily being um, having to be driven by a psychologist, um, but you know, certainly someone who has experience in, in child development and working with um, children with autism. And so, I talked a little bit common elements of CBT programs. Um, There are many of the behavioral components that uh, Greg referred to, and really what is is emphasized or maybe what is a little bit different about CBT is that cognitive restructuring, identifying what are the sort of irrational thoughts and being able to modify those. Um, And, and, you know, all of these programs also include the range of different coping strategies, um, some exposure some kind of hierarchy, whether it be f- different types of fears that are more or less um, anxiety-provoking or, um, you know, one fear in a sort of graded exposure. So as Greg was talking about, you know, dad having only one shirt, one arm of the shirt on and working up to the f- shirt uh, being fully on and buttoned. And then the other, um, I guess, common elements are Um, that are particularly important for children with autism are things like multimodal teaching. So using lots of different visual supports, sometimes social stories, sometimes video models, role play, um, and certainly reward systems. So I'm not going to kind of bore you too much with the science, but I think it's important to know that there have not been a lot of studies, actually, um, uh, considering that I just talked about, you know, five or six different types of programs. Um, There have been 12 uh, randomized control uh, treatment trials and two open trials um, across 11 different types of intervention programs, all with you know, some kind of CBT uh, component. Four of them were on the BIACA study, two on the Exploring Feelings. A lot of people mentioned their own sort of flavor of the coping cat, um, but so a lot of variability. Despite the different common elements, um, but you know, CBT did seem to be um, superior to treatment as usual or their weightless control groups, um, and you know, the the effect sizes or, or how how useful that was for you know a given group was really driven by one single study, um, and so that's kind of what pushed it into you know the headlines that you see in the news, um, but you know, even without that study, there was some benefit. Um, And so I think, you know, some of the things that, uh, one of the things that Dr. Leventhal mentioned earlier is, you know, there's a lot of variability in those groups, right? So we report a lot of group um, effects on different interventions. But that's, you know, it's... it's reduced a bit by the fact that some children, you know, aren't making a lot of change and some, a couple of children might get worse. And so even if you have some children who are getting a lot better, um, you may not um, necessarily see that in these group-based trials. And, you know, I think one thing to just think about in, um, you know, as clinicians, if you're thinking about using evidence-based research, there's not a lot of studies, but also these are pretty limited in terms of the scope of the, um, the samples that they're serving. So they have focused almost exclusively on school-age kids, a few adolescents, um, and these are primarily children with average or above average IQs um, and language abilities, which is necessary um, given the types of skills that CBT is focusing on. Okay, and I think that's all, and we didn't do too bad on time. Um,